Hello, my friends. I'm Shay Marville. Welcome to the second season of Let's Talk, a podcast dedicated to healing and growing through conversations, stories, and deep listening. We are an alchemy of one another. Talking helps us to relieve our burdens, to suffer less, because we are each other's medicine if we choose. So let's talk. Savina, welcome to Let's Talk. So let's talk. (laughs) I am so, you know, I am, I'm, I was so excited to reconnect with you. We had worked together over a decade ago uh, in healthcare and collaborated on um, wellness and meditation programs for clinicians. I'm really interested in your point of view as a clinical social worker going through the pandemic and some of the things that you're seeing. So welcome and let's talk. Let's talk about coping. Let's talk about creating, um, you know, sharing skills with people about how to cope. Yeah. Like, so, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing in, in, in the pandemic world right now. Well, I think it's, it's been an interesting two years. Um, Mm. This pandemic started with a lot of unknowns. We were hoping it was going to be very short lived, but it hasn't been. So Mm -hmm. it seems to be persisting. So this, this, it's definitely taken on a life of its own. And I think for a lot of individuals, a lot of people out there, um, initially, you know, people were pretty um, non-reactive. They were really hoping um, that this was going to pass. This was going to pass. And then months later, it wasn't passing. But then, you know, there was lots of different points in the pandemic where I think people were hoping, okay, we're going to have some breakthroughs. This would either die out or that the vaccines thing came up. And then, but now two years later, I think everybody's struggling. And I think it's pretty much across the board. Um, we all cope and manage differently. But aside from the pandemic, I think what's important to acknowledge is that life still has had to go on. All those other challenges that we all experience, whether there's a pandemic or not, you know, those difficulties have surfaced as well or continue to surface, right? Savina, what do you think the role of social workers are in a pandemic when it's so hard to find mental health support? I think that's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, my first reaction is that social workers, we, we operate an ecological systems perspective and, and a strength-based um, perspective. And, and during the pandemic, what was really challenging, I think, for a lot of people, for everyone, is the fact that we had to go into isolation. We had to distance ourselves. We had to contain ourselves. We had to contain our families, separate ourselves physically through through activities. And that's been very, very challenging. And it's having an impact on people because we are really, truly social beings, at least through the lens of sociology and social work is that our interconnection, our um, relationship with each other is, is valued, right? That we, we need each other in, in, in order to function in day-to-day society. So 
having that kind of disconnection over the last two years has been very challenging for a lot of people. So when they come to a social worker, our job is how do you find connection in your life? Mm, That's a very powerful question. How do you find connection in your life in this period that we're living in? Yeah. And, and what we thought was a norm is no longer, mm-hmm. you know, the, the social gatherings, the family gatherings, the activities, our exercise, our gyms, our, you know, the school environment, the school setting, um, our workplace environment. I mean, for most people, we are connected to some sort of organization or activity in our life. So now with, with this pandemic, We've had to make changes in how we relate and how we connect. So I think when they come to a social worker, it's like, okay, how do we find these connections? And how do you find meaning? How do you appreciate those small things in your life that you probably before didn't take a whole lot of stock into? Mm-hmm. So, do you, so you recommend that we start to look at what is working in our life and and see if we can focus on those pieces. Yeah. I think recognizing all the small things maybe before we took for granted suddenly now has more meaning in our life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. So I, I think that's what maybe a social worker can do. It's, it's really mapping out, okay, what was the, your life like? before the pandemic, what are the changes that had to take place? And this is not a short-lived issue. It seems to be persisting. So what are the things right now in your life that you can find connection in? Mm -hmm. And and for some people, because they had to live, you know, in isolation or they had to live on their own um, and they've had less contact with the outside world through periods of the pandemic, it's like, how do you find connection to yourself? Mm. you know what can you do for yourself how do you find meaning and connection and who you are and what you do and be grateful for those really small things in your life how do you how do you do that like what is the the practical way of of actually starting to value those things and assess them and and see them as important Mm-hmm. Important enough that it kind of helps you get through whatever you're experiencing in this moment, this moment of maybe loss or isolation or, you know, not doing what you you used to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, whenever someone comes to me, I'll say, well, you know, you've got to this point in your life. So obviously you have some skills, you have some all kinds of things. I mean, a lot of people don't recognize or value some of the, their accomplishments and achievements in their life. You know, mm. um, we tend to focus on the negative. I mean, that's just kind of human nature. Um, it's protective. It helps us assess our environment to protect yourself. Um, so we tend to miss out on some of those small things that we have accomplished in our life, or sometimes even the big things. And often I say to clients, well, you are skillful. You do have some good coping skills. You do have some good problem solving skills. What have you done for yourself in the past that has worked and mm. brought you a sense of purpose and meaning into your life and, and allows you to be in the here and now? What, how do, what do you define as a coping skill? 
a, a great coping skill is exercising. You know, finding the the time and the space to exercise, to eating healthy, um, to getting good sleep, you know, to engage in some sort of hobby or activity that brings you um, pleasure or brings you to living life in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, to feel connected to something you enjoy on a day-to-day basis. And it's not, it's not something that you, you know, you're not going to, if you've never been a runner, you're not going to set the, maybe the goal to do a 10K. Right, right, right. But if you have exercised in the past when you're younger, you know, a lot of us had a lot more free time, maybe, you know, before we had busy careers or children or when we were younger. And it's like, well, what did you do? And how did that make you feel? And how did you build that into your life at that time? And now that your life has changed, how do you find the space and the time for that? So that could even mean like five, 10 minutes a day. Right, right. No, we we really got to know each other because we both came from a uh, position, a value position around um, using mindfulness and meditation in our work. What role do you think meditation or or specifically mindfulness has in trying to process what's happening right now and and coping with with what's happening right now and kind of living through this, this new era? Well, you know, I think that's, um, it's always wonderful to talk about meditation mindfulness because we're both so passionate about it. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, mindfulness is about being in the moment. It's Mm -hmm. about, you know, setting the intention without judgment to be in the moment Mm -hmm. Um, as defined, you know, by John Kabat-Zinn, who is always my go-to in terms of defining what mindfulness is. And the reason why it's so powerful is that our brain is really struggles at being in the moment. It wasn't really built that way. We have the capacity to be in the moment, but we tend to focus on the past or we, we tend to be preoccupied with the future. So by being mindful and being present, we're able to experience life to its fullest, no matter how difficult no matter how painful life is, but it's, it's when you're present in the moment, mm-hmm. it's easier to find those small things in life that brings you pleasure, whether it's having a good cup of coffee in the morning or having a, a 10 minute phone call with your loved one or watching a good TV show, you know, once a week that you look forward to, if you're in the moment, you are going to, to have you, you're going to experience that wholeheartedly. You're going to feel the connection when you're doing those things. Now, now I'm going to just play devil's advocate, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because, I'll, you know, as you said, I am, a, you know, a champion of, of, of mindfulness and, and, and paying attention and silence and, and that practice. And it has served me well. But I also know, especially right now with the pervasiveness of technology and how fast everything is moving, even though we are living through this very transformative time, that it's hard for people to focus on the moment and to be in the moment. You know, one of the things I hear a lot is, I don't like my moment. I don't like this moment. So what is there to focus on if I'm not happy in this moment? The thing about mindfulness, I think, and meditation, I always separate the two, in my opinion. I mean, there's, there could be, there's an interconnection and overlap. Mindfulness is really a, a, a way of being, mm-hmm. it's being present. But in order to 
to be mindful, one of the ways that we can learn to be mindful is through the practice of meditation. Ah, I like that. I yeah. like that definition. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So you, you're actually saying that to be mindful, you don't always have to be meditating. Mm-hmm. Meditating is, is like a technique mm-hmm. to, to help become more mindful, but you could be mindful in a variety of ways um, that, that are not about sitting, you know, with focused on your posture and noticing your breath. It's really about how you think. Yes, it, it, it's, a, it's a quality. It, it's a quality or way of being. It's a behavior. It's, it's how you train your brain to become more aware. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I truly believe we all need a period every day where we have to be contemplative. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't have to be faith-based. It doesn't have to be spiritually based. I mean, it depends on what your value system is. So how do we find that time and space on a daily basis to be um, contemplative, to, to, you know, to meditate or to go for um, a walk, a stroll where we're, where we're contemplating and processing and reflecting about what's going on in our life and what's not going on and how we're feeling and not feeling. So that the, the mindfulness then is the quality that you're trying to build then in your daily life. So that when you are having some difficulties, when you are experiencing pain and um, you are experiencing difficulties and that you're able to draw out um, some of those things that you've been contemplating about and then you're mm-hmm. able to be more aware, to be more mindful of what's going on with you. Interesting. Do, do you think that when you're experiencing anxiety or uh, you're having any bouts of depression, that that mindfulness is one of the coping techniques you can use to help address that or or deal with that? I think it, it can help. So if you already have a practice and you're going through a difficult experience, you have anxiety or depression, it might be helpful. If you've never done it before, if you've never tried meditation or some sort of contemplative practice and you're feeling highly anxious and depressed, sometimes it can actually make things worse. Worse, yes. Yeah, that's right. It, actually, it can cause more agitation. It can cause more aggravation. Or, and often clients will say to me, you know, it actually, it gave me a, um, a negative response and I don't want to do it again, even though they may start yeah. to feel better. Yeah, I I feel like with with some clients, it also it they ruminate on the negative in in as they're trying to learn the process of becoming more mindful. If they are experiencing anxiety, or they're having, or they're 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 being held by depression in some way, that that's not necessarily the best time to to learn to practice, right? Uh, but I, I guess I'm, I'm asking you some of this because I'm, I've heard so much from so many people who are going through anxiety, um, you know, who are experiencing some form of depression or crises or, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling because of this, the new normal, that their life has, has changed in a way that makes them feel like they're not fully in control. And right now they don't feel 
as though they can hope. Mm-hmm. Do you, where do you land on, on some of that? I think we're living in a time of great uncertainty. Hmm. We, we, there's so much uncertainty. I mean, I think more so than ever before um, with this pandemic. I mean, there was some uncertainty before that. Maybe not so much in this part of the world, but definitely in the rest of the world. You know, there's been some challenges and difficulties, but this pandemic has hit us, you know, where it landed on our doorstep. And hmm. Yes, there is a, a lot of uncertainty. And we as human beings, I think, have a tendency to want to um, understand what our future is going to look like. And right now, we just don't know. We really don't know. Things are so different than we ever imagined from when this pandemic started. The, I think the anxiety is real. It's very real. Um, mm-hmm. It's very challenging. Because what we knew was the norm before is no longer the norm. And mm-hmm. we're not able to get back to the norm. And it's been two years. Right. But, but don't you think that it's also normal to learn to adapt and, yeah. and, and to find a source of you know, happiness or joy or, you know, maybe happiness is not the right thing to, to try to achieve because it, it, that, that is also so transient. But, but a kind of feeling of security for yourself, is, can, we not tr- can we not have that in this, in this moment? I think so. I think we have to continue. I mean, depending on the individual, I think you would continue to set goals for yourself, mm. realistic goals. Um, and then using the coping skills, using the things that have worked for you, but adapted to this new current situation that we're in. You know, I go back to the exercise. Okay, you may not be able to go to the gym. You know, they opened up and then they might be closing. We don't know what's going on. But how do you incorporate these activities in your life so that you don't lose what you were doing before and adapt? So it's mm-hmm. those really small, tangible things that can actually make a big difference in your day-to-day living. Mm-hmm. But what if you um, didn't go to the gym? Like, what if most much of your life was based on, you know, socializing with friends, having dinners, um, you know, going to events, going to the theater? What do you recommend for humans who have been very extroverted and and now feel like their life is sort of controlled by some sort of external, (laughs) external source. Yeah. And and that's, you know, it's like the million dollar question right now. Right. (laughs) But, you know, I I do lots of, I have lots of clients, you know, I have these discussions with, and I said, so what is it? So you're not going to be able to have a big family party like you did in the past for the holidays, like with 50 people or hundred people. So how do you then cope ahead and imagine yourself your own immediate family. How do you make that fun? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you enjoy that? How do you, you know, find joy in the in the small immediate family gatherings or with a couple of friends? Yes, yes. And, and and how do you, you know, how do you create that? It's not going to be the same, and it may never be the same for a while. We don't know. But then again, it's about you know being grateful for the small things. 
mm-hmm. for those smaller connections we have in our life, the ones that we are able to connect with, the ones that are still available and around um, that we can continue to connect with. And then how do we take great pleasure in, in those, those smaller get togethers? And for some people, you know, um, I know it's been really challenging because they've only been able to get together with people on zoom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, so how do you find connection in the one-to-one relationships in your life? Um, and, and some of that is cope. I think is coping ahead. So, you know, I always say to clients, look at your calendar for the next couple of days a week. I mean, you don't, you don't want to overbook yourself, but every day do a few things for yourself that will bring you some joy and pleasure. And if you are one of those social people, not everybody is, True. and you need to connect with people, do you, you know, right now the stores are still open, you know, do you set, you know, a one day a week where you do certain activities that you enjoy and you take pleasure in and, it could be as easy as even, you know, going to the Tim Hortons with one friend and having a cup of coffee right? or, or to Starbucks, you know, and one and dinner. You know, yes. Do, do you think it's challenge? Like, do you think that it's also about learning to be with yourself, learning to have, to have and to see the, the pleasure in being yourself? Do you think that's a struggle for a lot of people? I think so. I think it's it's a it's a real struggle for a lot of people to to be alone. Um, <laughs> you know, it it can be very lonely if you are living alone, or or especially in this uh, pandemic. Um, but you don't want to be alone for long periods of time. That can be very challenging as well. So it's finding the balance. So when you are alone, you know what what is it that you need to do for yourself the self-care you know whether you are listening to music reading you know poetry right you know journaling or you know doing people tell me they have all kinds of amazing hobbies and that right. they going for a walk by themselves and and finding again the space and the time to do that and, and making the effort to do it and, and then eventually the more that it's like anything else I always say you know the more you do something our brain learns to adapt to that to that situation to that environment. Right. Do, do you think that the role? Do you think that the role of social workers has changed because of the pandemic? The role of social workers in our general society has changed because of of having to go through this transition. I'm, I'm not honestly, Jay. I don't know if it's changed, but I do think social workers are more accessible. There's there's more mm-hmm. social workers that are available in private therapy than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know there's some people have had difficulties accessing services in the community, especially with the shutdown and the restrictions and so on. So I think people are reaching out to social workers more to get through some of the some of the challenges that's been because caused by the pandemic um, and as well, some of the mental health issues around anxiety and depression that has risen over the course of the past, you know, the past two years. Well, I, you know, I'm just going to be very uh, frank about it. I, uh, I believe that social workers have a very essential role to play in every part of our society. And I think Mm -hmm. They're more accessible, as you said, 
They're more accessible than psychologists and psychiatrists um, in many ways. I, I know I know quite a few people who have had experiences with the mental health system and have had a really hard time over the last two years getting help or getting support, especially for teenagers, for adolescents. And um, I always recommend to people when, you know, they call me and they say, you know, I'm having, I'm having difficulties. What would you recommend? Or could you refer me to, to a doctor? Uh, I always, I always say, have you tried talking to a social worker? Mm -hmm. Why do you, I mean, I don't know if you share that opinion with me, but why do you think uh, that, that social work may provide a philosophy that is really useful right now? Well, and I think because we are skilled at looking at people's environment, you know, mm -hmm. how they fit in into their home life, their work life, um, or their relationships with other people. And we're, and, you know, we're systems. I mean, we're originally trained as systems navigators, right? And we're kind of a bit of a jack of all trades. We're, you know, um, some social workers go on to train specifically in clinical social work. And a lot of social workers are, go on to become policy advisors and we can do policy work. So I think we have a range of skills where we can help individuals navigate their life. Mm -hmm. you know, what, to it, what, what does it mean? What does it mean to um, to be trained in in systems networking? Um, what what is what is that? So accessing resources in the community, accessing oh. services and resources. You know, um, kind of do the bit of that brokerage. Well, okay, if you you know, I have clients who are maybe fifty five plus. You know, considered they can access senior services in the community. If they're children and adolescents, connecting them to those right services uh, or for families, for single mothers, for, um, you know, just, you know, groups and social groups and peer support groups, all those types of services. I mean, that's what we're trained to do is to identify um, difficulties and barriers mm -hmm. that our individuals are, are experiencing and then to look at what's out there and what can people connect to. Mm. And so, and how can, you know, how will these things help them improve their mental well-being and how can they access these resources? Um, how did, how did you get into social work? How did you get into it? Um, I started working in the field even before I studied it. So it was, you know, like a, a job that I worked in group homes with children and youth, you know, um, and I was in, I think, grade 13 looking for work and I started working with kids and adolescents I spent the first 10 years of my career working with children and, and adolescents and then when I went I did a child and youth work degree uh, or diploma and I wanted to keep building on my career so I went and did a degree in anthropology and social work and started working in adult mental health really enjoyed it I learned a lot about human nature human condition I think what it taught me is as as we're extremely resilient people. Human beings are extremely resilient, but we can also be very fragile. Mm. We can also be vulnerable. And the balance is knowing that when we are feeling vulnerable, that it's okay to be vulnerable. And everyone has periods of vulnerability in their life and difficulties. I mean, life does not occur without difficulties. There's no way. Pandemic Amen. or no pandemic. Amen, sister. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
so pandemic or no pandemic, life is difficult. There's challenges yes. and it gets difficult as we get older. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it's not a bad thing because we learn from our difficulties. We grow from our difficulties as, as hard as it is, you know, especially, I mean, the worst thing that usually happens to someone is the death of someone that you love very deeply, you know, yes. a close family member or child. I mean, that's devastating. But even that, we know through time and history that we we come through these things. Yeah. And what we want to do is find ways to come through these these events and these difficulties with becoming more wiser and stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and well, I don't know that. Uh, there is any good way to go through grief or or mourning, but I guess it's about saying to to someone um, that that you can get through it. That as uh, you know, that as hard as this moment is, you you will get through this, and and that there is hope on the other side uh, in terms of getting through. Yeah. And, you know, and we ha- there's that saying, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. This too shall pass. And, um, and, and you, we, we have no choice but to get through it. We can't, yes. We have to ha- always have hope. But sometimes it's hard to find hope on our own when we're in isolation or if we're struggling with anxiety and depression. And we shouldn't under, undervalue that or underestimate that. You know, and uh, you know, with with a degree in anthropology, I think I've told you this. Um, and I've done a little bit of traveling and lived up in the north for a period of time. And I, you know, I came to Canada as a young girl, as an immigrant. Um, so I lived in a couple different cultures. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the difficulties I think is that we don't have to go through anything alone. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think in other cultures and other parts of the world, loss and grief. Are, are seen as natural processes of life, you know, unfortunately, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, because we all have a beginning and an end here in this world. Um, and to have understanding of that, and that when we do go through that experience, that we have a support network around us, yes, who will carry us through those difficult periods, because we can't do it alone. No, no, we cannot. And, and 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 sometimes I think though the hardest thing is to acknowledge that uh, you can't do it alone, you know, or to navigate to navigate how to reach out and how to ask for support and to know when you need support, to know when you need to reach out, but to also know when you just need space uh, to be to be on your own to process to process what's happening. Yeah, and and I think one of the greatest difficulties people have and it's it's and it's not a criticism or a judgment and I think it's a really natural response as a human being we try to get through difficulties as quick as possible as fast <laughs> as possible. Yes. So then we think okay, we don't need help. We're self-sufficient, you know, um we can do this. We have to be strong. We'll plow through this. But if we don't allow ourselves to feel our emotions, to experience our emotions, and to experience our difficulties, and give us ourselves the space and the time and connect with those people who will allow us to be vulnerable and validate our experience, we will get through it. 
Mm. Oh, I like this. I, I want to explore this a little bit with you because, uh, well, there's so many things, but I do think there's sort of um, this, this idea in, in our culture mm-hmm. in North America that, that we should get through grief quickly. Like, like somehow, you know, you're going to do it in three weeks or, 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 you know, and, you know, or that there's, you know, the six stages or the seven stages of grief. And, and that if you don't get through all those stages in a certain period of time, and it, that somehow you are stuck and that, you know, you're not, you're not grieving correctly. And I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I feel that grief represents whatever relationship you had with someone Mm -hmm. and however you are living your life prior to someone passing away that you loved dearly or deeply, that sort of dictates how you experience the grief of, of losing that person and being in relationship with them in a different way now that they're gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think it, it, I think we just you're right. I think culturally we tend to think a little bit more linearly here that mm. if someone maybe passes away and we we feel the sadness, we feel the loss, um, but we try to rush through it. Mm-hmm. Try to you know a lot of us, and, and especially a lot of people who who tend to be in their head a lot just don't want to feel those difficult emotions. So it's easier to tell yourself, okay, I've gone through a difficulty. I've lost someone I truly love and care about, and I just need to move on. Mm. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But the problem is that those feelings don't always just go away on its own. Mm -hmm. They'll surface back again. That's a complication of emotions is that emotions that are very intense and very painful they have a life of its own and then mm. we have to be able to give it the space and the time to to feel it to experience it to process it whether we do that with our loved ones or do things that will make it less um difficult to experience you know for for some people it could be you know going you know you hear these stories of people who when someone passes away, they leave the room in the same state as it is when the person mm-hmm. passes. And it can take years before they go back to that room. Yes, yes. And who's to say that's the right or wrong thing to do? Right, right. We, we don't, you know, we didn't understand the dimension or the dynamics of that relationship. So as a social worker, it's like, well, you know, let's talk about the relationship with that person and how did that person impact your life? Mm-hmm. You know, and... and and, and then we, we talk about that, that the pain and the loss of that individual. How's, how has that impacted your life? And now where, where do you go from here? Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself moving on? Why, is it, why, why can't we just stuff our emotions down? Why, why isn't that, that good for us? Because sometimes people stuff their emotions, suppress their emotions so that they can, you know, move forward in their life and do other things. And, and you'll hear people say, I, I don't want to give in to those emotions, but then those emotions seem to find a way to surface at some other point. From your point of view, why, why is that? Like, why does that happen? 
I think it's a, it, it's very common, actually much more common than people think. And I think it's because we, our brains um, don't like to tolerate intense emotions for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. It wants to solve the problem. So when we feel a lot of fear or sadness or anger or some shame, we just mm-hmm. want to tuck it away somewhere. So we do stuff it down. We keep stuffing it down. It becomes the norm for us. And then eventually everybody reaches I mean, I'm generalizing, but people reach some sort of tipping point because as life, the continuing, the continuum of life occurs, those emotions begin to accumulate. And at some point we all have to come to terms with some of these difficult emotions and we all do it differently. I mean, I don't know if everybody needs to go into therapy. Um, certainly therapy seems to help, but I think we're living in a society more where we're very driven to be very goal oriented, mm-hmm. to really push forward and accomplish those things that make us feel good on a material level um, and, and um, in our careers and in our workplaces. And we're very focused on how we're functioning. Um, and less so focused on life experiences. Hmm. So, so the more that we tend to be, you know, focus um, in our minds and tend to intellectualize and focus on that, we give less weight to our emotions. And there's a hmm. tendency to stuff it down and stuff it down, right? Because it gets in the way. I mean, I think the fear of emotion, what I've learned in my 30 years of practice, is that emotions are messy. <laughs> they're so messy right they're all entangled together of what's happened in your past the relationships you know our goals and our dreams things that we wanted that didn't happen um, and then things that happened that we wanted so badly and then we think okay if I hadn't stayed focused and, and stayed on track and I let these emotions get in the way I wouldn't be where I am right now right our right. minds are so powerful you right. know yeah. I, I- Although, um, as you know, I I lost my mom and I know that you went through an extraordinary loss with your partner at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. I, I, I do feel that as painful as it is to lose somebody that you love, I do feel that, that I've learned so much since my mother has passed Mm -hmm. Uh, that that the pain of losing her, yes, it has been, you know, it's been terrible, but it's also been enlightening. I've I've also learned about some things like vulnerability and and love. And I would prefer for her to be here and to to have not you know, to not know those things in a way, but at the same time, I do feel uh, expanded by knowing that, that, that pain or, you know, the depth of that experience. And, and I, and I, I feel as though grief is an incredible learning space, but we don't talk about it as such. It's because it's so painful. Mm -hmm. I think if we, a year ago at this time, I probably wouldn't have been able to have this conversation with, with you. But after a year and 
and I, and I had to get some grief counseling myself mm-hmm. to really mm-hmm. process that experience. Like what happened? Cause it happened really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, his passing, um, my, my partner's passing. And I think what I learned the most, and I'm still learning. I, I'm st- I still have to go back and think about how did this really affect me in my life? And the way I look at it is that what can I learn from this experience that I had um, in the relationship I had with him mm-hmm. and his illness and then his passing. And one thing that I learned um, is life is very short mm-hmm. and we really, really have to think about that and live our life wholeheartedly and truthfully. Yes. And experience life for all the good that it has. And I, I know it sounds so dreamy, you know, it's like, but for me, because when, as he was getting really sick and passing away mm. um, and he was young, cause he was only 51. I think what really stayed with me is, and the things that we talked about are things that he had wished that he had done, but now, cause we had a fairly new relationship and, and mm. the dreams and the goals that we had together that hmm. he was not able to do because of this illness that took his, his life away very, very quickly. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And, and he was a very thoughtful, deep, intellectual man. So you mm-hmm. know, we had these beautiful, wonderful conversations, um, but left me with incredible um, courage. He left me courage to go on with my life. Yes. And to live my life in a way that I could be my best self. And, and what gift is that? It's, it's a gift indeed. And I think you are so courageous because, you know, you're raising your daughters and you, you know, you, you have a, a practice that you you're building and, you know, and, and a job and, and you teach at McMaster and you're doing, you know, and you, and you look after your family and you're, and you're doing so much. I mean, it's, it's incredible to know that you could take, that you, you can grow from that loss. And, and, and that's exactly the piece that I find fascinating about, about grief and loss is that the immediate belief is that when you lose someone, you know, you've lost that person and what you had with them. But then there's, it's almost as though this invisible part of you could grow mm-hmm. that, that in which you become wider and bigger because you're so aware of the fragility of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fragility and the resilience. Mm-hmm. That, yes. Yes. And, you know, difficulties happen and sometimes they're not fair. You know, I, I always say to clients, we don't pick the family we're born to. We don't even pick the country. Landing in. <laughs> <laughs> and and our, certainly our children don't pick us as parents. Um, That's right. You know, so it's hard to know, but what, how do you find purpose and meaning in all of that and make, make your best life um, and keep moving forward? So, you know, and, and to be fair, Che, I have to mention this because I have a strong sense, connection to my faith. You know, yes. I grew up in a very, you know, from a very diverse spiritual faith-based background. You know, I was exposed to multiple um, belief systems at a very young age. And I'm truly grateful for that. You know, a lot of people. Where, where did say, you grow up? Where did you grow up again? 
I grew up in Mauritius, a little island off the coast of Madagascar, you know, in the middle mm. of the Indian Ocean. Mm. I came to Canada at the age of six, December of 1978, actually. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, so, and, and it's very, it's very uh, spiritually, religiously, and racially diverse in Mauritius, correct? It is. Um, so I was raised as a Hindu. Um, my mom was a Hindu background. My father had converted to the Baha'i faith. Mm. Um, but we had extended ma- family members who were Catholic because Mauritius had once been a French colony and then became an English colony. And now it, you know, it's part of a Commonwealth or I think now it's independent. Um, and then there's also a large um, Islamic community as well. So we had very close family friends who were from is- Islamic background. So I feel so blessed that I had such exposure to the diversity, not only of religion, but cultures and, and, you know, different kind of cultural backgrounds or ethnicity, right? So we had India, you know, my family are descendants from India mm-hmm. that had moved to Mauritius, uh, you know, generations ago as indentured laborers. Um, and then you have the African population that had been brought all over by the French to work as slaves on the island, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of centuries ago. And then you have the um, the Asian merchants that came in from China, Korea, all those mm. places that eventually migrated to Mauritius to work on the island. So there was such, and then you have the French, you know, the French community, um, the yes. descendants of the French, and then, the, and then a little bit of the British. So culturally very rich i mean we had french bakeries all over the island mm. along with you know the street vendors you know the indian street vendors yes um, yes you know the end of the, the african cuisine and the culture you know the the traditional the traditional dance mauritius is actually more of an african mm-hmm. um, dance which is really beautiful so it's just you know so i feel really fortunate so coming to canada in the late 1970s living you know, Southern Ontario was like a culture shock. <laughs> <laughs> Not like it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and, and we were probably the only ethnic family in our in our area for, for a long time. And I didn't speak a word of English. Wow. So I only spoke French. And so it was quite the journey. It was, a be- you know, I feel really grateful. I mean, I used to think, oh, my God, it could have been so much easier. And, and, I, my, and I said to my parents, why did we move here? Like, is there anywhere else that we could have moved to? <laughs> you know, all our cousins moved to Montreal because they spoke French, but we had to move to the most, you know, the English speaking area. So anyways, it's, it's, it's my faith, though. And I, when I came to Canada, so going back, I started going to Baha'i children's classes which mm. I found I really enjoyed. I loved what it attracted me to the Baha'i faith because I really had the choice and the option because my, my parents were from different, you know, were practicing different religious practices at the time. And, and the, what attracted me to the Baha'i faith was the concept of the oneness, the oneness of humanity, the oneness of religion, the oneness mm. of God, that there's just one true creator that we can all connect to. And spirituality is not about, you know, doctrine or about what you do in terms of, of you know, the, the rituals and the things that you need to do. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But spirituality is about really connecting to something bigger than you and finding that common humanity in all of us. 
Yes, yes. And becoming your, your true and becoming, you know, your, your true self. I don't know a lot about the Baha'i faith. I, one of my best friends, Rabina, is her her background is Baha'i. And, and so I learned a bit through her and her beautiful family and, and how they practice. But how would you describe Baha'i faith? Um, I think we're a pretty culturally diverse community. I mean, the, the, it originated in Iran. So there's a lot large Persian Baha'i community here in Southern Ontario. Um, I would say it's, it's a very accepting community. We don't, we don't have any temples or churches locally. Anyways, we have international temples. So it's really a, your day-to-day practice. I mean, we're, Mm. we have our own sacred texts. We're meant to pray every day, to meditate, you know, to reflect and hold ourselves accountable to how we live Mm. our life on a spiritual basis and how we relate to others. And really, the main principles of the Baha'i faith is, is about unity, you know, mm-hmm. unity and justice, really learning to work together collectively as human beings so that we can bring, bring the best in ourselves, our families, our communities, our um, organization, you know, the cities that we live in, is, is to always operate on this principle of unity. And understanding that's that's beautiful. I mean, I think you know one of the great values of coming from any faith tradition. I think is the value of contemplation Mm -hmm. and being able to create space in your life to contemplate the scriptures or the text or to pray or to practice silence and. You know, it, it's one of the things that makes me feel like I, I, I feel so grateful, you know, even though there's a lot of criticism of religion, you know, and, and, and different religions. And, you know, there are all these terrible things that have happened, um, you know, influenced by religion. But at the same time, there are all these books and texts from from all these different backgrounds that mm-hmm. are about being a better human being mm-hmm. and about you know contemplating suffering and and learning to sit with the things that are painful and i and i and i actually feel that this is a very hopeful time that we're that we're in even though we're going through you know this this transformative time you know um informed by the pandemic i think that it is the first time that you know sort of globally most of us globally are aware of the same narrative. We're all aware of this wild and crazy pandemic that keeps going on and on and on. And we're all trying to figure out life within it. And I, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where we've had that. And, and, and the reason I think that's valuable is that for the first time, we all know something of each other's story. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I think that the role of faith and learning to, to focus on what you have that's working, I think, I think that is a very useful process to healing and, and, and you know, to, to coping with the things that we're suffering. Yeah, and, and I, I would agree. And I think if the contemplation piece is key. 
I really do. And it's forcing us to be more contemplative, to really think about who we are, how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to the world. And I think that's what this pandemic has done. Mm. And whether you do it, you know, um, the meditation from a spiritually based or you do it from doing a stress management, you know, technique or intervention, it gives our brain the ability to pause, to reflect and to, con- to connect to those difficult emotions. So to kind of circle back a little bit, yes. our brain needs that time to connect to the emotions. Say say it again because I think this is I think this is the like oh oh my god this is the piece this yeah. no no this is because so for so many people mm. we, there is don't talk about it uh, uh, you know push it away you you don't need to dwell on that when there is a part of of what we are going through that requires some dwelling no. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. We do. We need that. We've always needed it. And this, mm. but this pandemic has forced us to do it. Not all of us, but I think it's, <laughs> no, <laughs> not all of us. You know, I, I, after, after my partner passed away, I spent the whole winter every day walking with a walking partner. And that yes. was my time just to breathe cold air into my lungs so I could feel energy going into my body. Mm. you know and and that to me was contemplated you know um, because our brain it just needs that it needs that time and space and sure you know a lot of religion a lot of faith will say we need to to pray we need to meditate we need to be contemplative but it it you know but we don't have to do it from that angle but to do it to find that time just to reflect on how we're feeling what we're thinking what we mm-hmm. want, what we don't want, what's working, what's not working is like, you know, to find that space every day. I was listening to Robin Sharma. I'm sure you. Yeah. I love Robin yeah. Sharma. Yeah. I mean, he's great. I mean, and his source of inspiration from what I, I was listening to um, was reading the book, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Oh, beautiful. You know, and, you know, and, and connecting to our own pain is so different. And sometimes a lot of us, fortunately, can go through life without having to connect to deep pain. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I don't ever want to operate from a state of envy Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, why has that person gone through life so much easier than me, than that person? Mm -hmm. Because we just don't know. That's going to say, I don't, I don't think we can know. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had this debate with a number of people, you know, who've been on the show who said, well, you know, you know, some a lot of people, there's a lot of people who are suffering more than other people. And I, and I, I think, I think we just don't know that. I, I know that, you know, that economically, some people are suffering more, um, you know, in terms of health, some people are suffering more, you know, in terms of social relationships and isolation, some people are suffering more. Mm-hmm. But every human being is born with a life that has its own formula and part of that formula is suffering and every human being has their own kind of suffering we we all have things to face and to survive we want to just keep talking about all of the different skills and all of the different ways of learning to survive and saying you can survive you can survive the most painful things as shocking as it is you 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 can keep going and, and and we have survived, 
as a humanist. Yes, and and we have, you know, I mean, here to to that point, we we have survived the last two years. Like if you had said to almost, you know, the majority of the world's population, especially you know where where the pandemic has hit the hardest, you know, two and a half years ago, we're going to go through a pandemic, and and you're going to have to wear a mask, and you're going to lose people in in your community, and you you know your whole life is going to change, and the the economy is going to change, and you're not going to be able to go to a restaurant anymore. And, you know, and the, the list of things goes on. People would say, oh, my God, what a you know terrible movie. Or, you know, I, I can't imagine that ever happening. But here we are. Here we are living through it and, and innovating and creating and, and trying to, to make a new life out of all of this. And I, and I think for me, that's where the hope is. The hope is in the fact that we're all still standing, many of us, not all of us, as you and I both know, we've both lost the most important people in our lives to, you know, but I keep thinking they wanted to live. And so they, they, you know, my mom lives in me through me and, and I, and I take some pride in that. Yes, and, and it's the same with my partner. He lives his his strength. Mm-hmm. He left me when he passed, he left me his strength because of that love that bind us together. That that was my source of strength after he passed away. Mm-hmm. So I have to hold on to that as much as I was deep into the grief, you know, concerned for the well-being of my kids. But his strength, his love for me is what gave me strength to carry on. Um you know, because that's what binds us. It's love is what binds us. You know, not, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the romantic love. But, you know, that's yes. I'm talking about true human connection and love. Love, you know, and that's also about the love for yourself is recognizing your own worth and your own ability and your own strength. You know, that's very much, you know, as, and I think that came naturally to me I mean, going back again to some of your original questions. So when I got into social work, I wasn't really too sure what I was going to do. But it made so much sense sense to me because in my own faith, it says to recognize our own nobility, yes. to recognize the strength. So whoever, whoever we believe is our creator created us with strength and nobility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have that inherently and we have seen it. We have survived through the tests of times. Yes. And we will survive this again. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not saying it's not going to be without difficulties you know, it's impossible to say that. Right. Um, and, um, and we have to keep moving forward. So how do we do that? So we have to draw on what, what's worked for us, what we can do to um, find more connection to ourselves, as you said. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you find that? So Robin Sharma talks about finding that time in the day, for, every day for contemplation mm. or reflectiveness or, or um, you know, whether that be in the form of, meditating or whether it's a walk or sitting in silence or listening to music everybody does it differently do do you have before we before we go are there are there three things that you would recommend that you know people do right now to to cope and strengthen themselves Mm -hmm. as as they move through this moment 
not to simplify people's lives, but I think the most important things you can do for yourself is to physically take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Make sure lots of people are not sleeping well. You know, a lot of people suffer from insomnia. The majority of people I see talk about difficulties with sleep and I've had difficulties with sleep my whole life. So I've lived it. Um, and, and, you know, taking care of yourself physically, whatever that looks like eating healthy and staying connected, finding time to stay connected to yourself. And I'm adding two more, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to stay connected to those people that you feel, you know, connection and validation from. Yes. Yeah. Connection and validation from. Yes. I love that. I, I really appreciate that. And, and I, I think just talking, being able to talk about the hardships of the moment and, and, and that we're together doing it. Right. I, and I'm, I'm so grateful that we were able to reconnect and um, I, I would love to have you back on the show. I, I know you've helped so many people. Uh, I'm grateful for your work. Uh, I'm grateful for your friendship and it's been extraordinary to see uh, the courage uh, that you have um, shown uh, as you've walked through this moment of, of, of grief, because I think it's a, it's a teaching moment to others. So my friend, thank you. I'm Shay Marville, and you've been listening to Let's Talk, a podcast dedicated to healing and growing. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And listen, I need your help to grow the reach of this show. Could you, would you please subscribe? rate and review us on any platform that you're listening to. I'd love to hear your feedback. Ciao for now.